Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Oxford Policy Pod, based at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. I'm your host, Sruthi Palaniabin. March 15th, earlier this year, marked 10 years since peaceful protesters marched in the streets to demand dignity and democracy in Syria. Indeed, what started as civilian protests against Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, and the Assad regime quickly became a proxy war waged on many different fronts. Over the course of 10 years, 12 million Syrians, half the pre-conflict population, were displaced. And at least 400,000 Syrians lost their lives in this crisis, with many more lives likely still unaccounted for. Since the withdrawal of U.S. troops in 2018, Assad's regime has regained control of most of the territory aside from Idlib. After 10 years of conflict, the infrastructure is in shambles and there's no straight path forward. This raises a lot of questions about how reconstruction should occur and under what conditions how the displacement crisis and the humanitarian needs of civilians should be addressed, and who's responsible for it. As we dive into these questions, we want to emphasize that given the complexity of this conflict, what we discuss today only touches on the surface, and there are many other views and perspectives that are not represented in this episode. And with that, let's get on. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. What the media is showing previously that the Syrian war have, have been ended and right now it's a new era of reconstruction, uh, this is not true at all. Nobody is immune to such great suffering and such great crimes against humanity. According to UNICEF as well, the education infrastructure is so weak. There is thousands of schools that have been targeted. Without accountability, you can have no justice and without no justice, you can have no peace. Joining us now is Reem Alaf, a Syrian-born writer, political analyst, and communications strategist. She was an associate fellow at Chatham House from 2004 to 2012 in the Middle East and North Africa program. She's also published numerous analyses and articles on the region, with Syria being her area of expertise, and continues to write, speak, and advise on Syrian affairs. Reem is also on the board of directors of The Day After, a renowned Syrian-led civil society organization working to support a democratic transition in Syria, and is also on the advisory council of the Middle East Institute Syria program. Reem, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So given the diversity of perspectives on this crisis, can you tell us a bit about who you are and the work you've done that's really informed how you think about these complex issues? Well, I, I think that being Syrian, having Syrian heritage obviously helped um, my, my focus and my research on the country. I have been going back and forth uh, to visit Syria over the years. And I started researching and writing uh, extensively about Syria way before the revolution started in 2011. And I find myself very often going back to pieces I'd written in the first 10 years um, of Bashar Assad's reign in Syria and seeing already the signs of discontent, the signs of implosion, way before the Arab Spring um, erupted. And I find that in order to understand the last 10 years, it is very important to not take these 10 years alone, but to take the last 20 years together to understand why we are where we are today. Yeah, as you said, it really is important to have that historical grounding to better understand the past, especially as we look to the present and future. And it has now been 10 years since the 2011 revolution. So why do you think the civil war has persisted over these past 10 years? 
And how have these factors led to the current situation in Syria? Most Syrians would um, are very sensitive about hearing their revolution being described as a civil war. They see it as a popular, peaceful uprising, which it was for the first year of the revolution. And they expected that their their resilience in being peaceful would see some pressure from the international community on the Assad regime. But this is not what happened. Nobody is surprised by the brutality of the regime. This is a regime which crushed an uprising in in Hama in uh, in the early 1980s. So everybody was aware of just how, how violent they could be. But what people did not expect was that nobody would come to their aid or that nobody would pressure the Assad regime. What happened was, in fact, the reverse. The international community, the U.S., the powerful European countries, you know, talked the talk but did not walk the walk, whereas the regime's backers, primarily Iran in the first years, sending its militias, especially Hezbollah, to help the Syrian army defeat the revolutionaries and later to defeat the Free Syrian Army, which was formed by defecting soldiers, um, they gave all the help openly and were not stopped by anyone, anyone else. The big turning point, I believe, was in August 2013, when we experienced the first large-scale chemical massacre in Douma and Ghouta, in the suburbs of Damascus, and the infamous red line that President Barack Obama had repeated several times. So we had all expected if the regime were to commit this very large-scale atrocity, the international community would step in, would make sure that the Assad regime was contained. This did not happen. So this is why, as of 2014, the violence uh, became even even, even bigger. Um, the, the, the Assad regime was unleashed all over the countries, openly um, bombing, carpet bombing, really, most areas in Syria. And at the same time, this is when the rise of ISIS began to manifest itself within Syria. This gave an excuse for Putin, for Russia, to come into the Syrian conflict in 2015, and obviously to cause the large uh, exodus of Syrian refugees. So every action had a reaction And the regime at no point in time felt threatened or felt that it had to reconsider its positions. And the regime was able then to brutally retake Aleppo in 2016, move on to Ghouta, which was still a rebel stronghold in 2018, forcibly displace millions of Syrians to Idlib, where now we have around 4 million uh, Syrians just sitting in an open-air ghetto, waiting for deliverance without anybody stepping in. This is why I have called this the epicenter of our collective failure as a global community. And you've been talking about this general apathy and lack of action on the part of key international actors. So what do you see then as the role of the international community in the short and long term moving forward? It's it's difficult to imagine that uh, any armed a solution can come today because, you know, that, that, that ship has sailed a long time ago. In fact, most Syrians were never asking for, you know, the, 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 the proverbial uh, boots on the ground. On the contrary, what they wished for and asked for was either a no-fly zone for years. That no-fly zone never came. However, 
there are many cards still available in the hands of an international community. And the two um, areas on which I focus uh, recently is, you know, with Russia and with Iran. With Iran, we have a new administration in Washington, which is able to look at the consequences of not having imposed on Iran at least some modicum of, of, of compromises uh, within the region to rein in its uh, militias and to make sure that they do not play um, the destructive role they have played in Syria and in Lebanon and in Iraq. On the Russian side, we always hear that President Putin is this great strategist who has won this great victory. I don't see it like that. For Putin, this, this victory is incomplete because he cannot get rid of his Assad problem and he cannot continue to, um, to invest, whether financially or politically, in a, you know, in a country, in Syria, which he has technically already won. He already has the military bases. He has all the clout that he needs. So in Syria now, he needs to reap the spoils of war. He needs to turn the page and to consider Syria as something that is not a problem anymore. He is unable to do that without European and American help. So that has to happen because the only powers which can begin to rebuild Syria financially are the European powers, with the US of course, with the help of the Syrians themselves who would find a reason to return to Syria. For that to happen, Putin must be pressured to, have, to give concessions somewhere. Some of these concessions are enforcing the political transition, which resolution, Security Council Resolution 2254 already demands since 2015. Putin has been unwilling to do that. Putin must be pressured to force Assad to release hundreds of thousands of forcibly disappeared and detained Syrians in Assad jails. And Putin has been repeatedly unwilling to do that. And this is where the US and the EU can play a big role. This will not bring back the many lives lost, but this would allow for a gradual return of refugees to certain areas of Syria under the protection of this deal, of this pressure that the US and the EU would have put on Russia, on Turkey, and on Iran. And in addition to these discussions on Russia and Iran, it appears that another key issue in Syria is this trade-off between reconstruction and accountability. So on one hand, there are people who support the use of sanctions to hold the state regime accountable and to prevent legitimizing what many people see as an illegitimate regime. But on the other hand, some have recognized that the Assad regime is unlikely to concede to some or all of these demands. So the sanctions may not necessarily be effective. And importantly, they could stifle reconstruction efforts. So some have instead advocated for humanitarian waivers to ensure that Syrians living in the country are able to get some form of support. What do you make of these two different positions? I think we cannot um, separate uh, accountability from any other consideration in Syria. The two are not mutually exclusive. We do not have to choose between holding war criminals accountable and between helping other Syrians rebuild their lives. These must go together. Without accountability, you can have no justice, and without no justice, you can have no peace. So let us 
forget, you know, let us um, stop talking about this fantasy that we can just turn the page and that Assad and all his cronies can just waltz away should we have a political transition. No, I think it is very important, not just for Syrians, but for the future of our international community, that we insist that no war crime nor crime against humanity is ignored and um, that, that no criminal is allowed to be unaccountable. These are issues which we must insist on, as first of all, as people who believe in international law and as people who are pragmatists, because if you allow this much barbarity and brutality and violence to go unchecked, you are opening the door for other regimes, for other uh, brutal conflicts to continue to 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 start and and to you know with with the perpetrators knowing that if nothing was done with Syria, nothing will be done for them. So I, I think it is very dangerous to put these two on the same, you know, on a scale and say, well, you know, accountability would be good, but really the first priority is the reconstruction and allowing Syrians to rebuild their lives. Syrians will not have closure and will not be able to restart building their lives and their country if there is no accountability for what has been done. Hmm. Then what form do you think this accountability should take place? Do you think that sanctions are an appropriate measure? Our solution now is political and financial pressure. There is no escaping the sanctions because nothing else is making Putin and Iran pay attention. Assad is not the person I talk about anymore directly. He is irrelevant. He is not the person or the party to be pressured. The pressure must and the negotiations must happen with Russia and with Iran. Yeah, and I now want to turn back to the UN Security Council Resolution 2254, which you mentioned earlier. So in 2015, the UN Security Council Resolution was unanimously adopted and calls for Syrian-led political processes that involved the establishment of a transitional governing body, the drafting of a new constitution, and UN-supervised elections. Do you think UNSCR 2254 adequately reflects the desires and hopes for Syrians living in and outside of Syria? Absolutely not. Resolution 2254 obviously only passed unanimously because it had to be watered down because of the Russian threat of a veto. Uh, nothing in Resolution 2254 even begins to respond to the aspirations and the demands of the Syrian people. In fact, the Syrian public opinion is scathing about the Constitutional Committee, which they understand and, you know, with which I agree is, is, is a, you know, is a farce, is a time-wasting tactic led by the Russians, by the way, who wanted to show that they're doing something, something minimal. So what 2254 calls for is the establishment of a constitutional committee, and this happened like three years after the um, resolution was passed, in which three groups of 50 people, one each from the regime side, one from the opposition side, and one from civil society side, would meet in Geneva to discuss the drafting of a constitution. Now, whereas the regime group is obviously all uh, people who work directly for the regime, it's a little bit more complicated with the group of the opposition because there are numerous oppositions now in Syria. These groups have been meeting uh, not so regularly, 
and they have been unable to come to any uh, development or achievement. So here we are, you know, five years later. What we are um, witnessing now is a Russian acquiescence to having Bashar Assad elect himself one more time for another seven years, which is the current term under the, the, the Syrian constitution at the moment, which means that any attempt to even do this very basic and very farcical constitutional committee, even if it were to come to a new constitution, which would be put to referendum to all Syrians and which mandate would mandate new elections, would only happen, according to Putin, in seven years. So the entire um, process is ridiculed by Syrians. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. It's obviously such a difficult situation. So as we leave today, do you have any parting thoughts you'd like to share about how individuals can make a difference to ensure, as you beautifully put it, that this anniversary should be the last of its kind? So it is very important for students and for the international community all over the world to understand that what happens in Syria did not and will not stay in Syria. It also provides us with huge lessons as to how unchecked authoritarianism, brutality and violence and barbaric actions, if they are kept unchecked, will trigger consequences and those consequences affect everyone in the international community. Nobody is immune to such great suffering and such great crimes against humanity, nor should we be immune, whether it is in Syria, whether it is in Ukraine, whether it is in Myanmar and further beyond. So please continue talking, understanding, reading and advocating about Syria and about other places where people need to be helped and to be understood. Yes, certainly many different lessons and ramifications for people all over the globe. Reem, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your perspective. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Our next guest is Mazen Al-Husseini. Mazen is a Syrian who currently works at Syria Relief, the largest Syria-focused NGO in the United Kingdom. He has led and been part of humanitarian assistance projects for close to a decade, working with international NGOs and Syrian diaspora organizations. Now, in addition to geopolitical issues, the Syrian conflict has led to several humanitarian challenges, including food insecurity, mass starvation, and the inadequate or lack of access to health and education infrastructure faced by millions of Syrian refugees and internally displaced Syrians. To explore these issues further, Joining Mazin is OPP correspondent Hafsa Anwar. Mazin, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Hafsa. It's a pleasure. Can you briefly summarize for us the current situation on the ground and the key lessons that humanitarian agencies have learned over the past 10 years? So as you have mentioned, it has been a decade since the conflict has started, which have list. Uh, that half of the population are either displaced inside the country or refused in the nearby countries. Unfortunately, half of those statistics are young children. Now, the thing is that with the combination of efforts from UN agencies, INGOs, and local organizations, Syrian organizations, we cannot respond to the massive needs 
in the three hubs. One is northwest of Syria, where more than 4 million individuals are living there. 2.7 of those 4 million are internal displaced uh, individuals. 76% of them are women and children. There is another territory, which is in northeast of Syria. We have the massive needs over there as well. We have a camp that's full of children and women, and they are citizens of Western countries, which is called Al-Hul, and no one wants to take them back to their countries, which is an additional crisis to the crisis that we are facing. We have a third hub, which is Damascus and the government-held areas, which is in addition to the displaced people that are there, in addition to the massive needs for humanitarian needs, they are also facing the COVID pandemic, uh, hugely much bigger than the other two hubs uh, due to several reasons. So we have tried to alleviate the suffering by distributing emergency uh, aid assistance, such as food baskets, non-food items, hygiene kits, etc. But this could not last forever. There is no infrastructure, literally, in several areas, uh, particularly in northeast, northwest, and some of the areas that the government have recently taken the last two years. So there is, uh, according to WHO, 50% of the health facilities inside Syria are either damaged, destroyed, or closed. Uh, and according to UNICEF as well, the education infrastructure is so weak. Uh, there is thousands of schools that have been targeted, that are destroyed or damaged. So this means that a new generation uh, that are illiterate are going to be discovered after a couple of years from now. COVID-19 have been an additional player to increase the harm. Uh, that have been caused uh, by the conflict on those vulnerable families, as well as the economic situation. So according to the latest statistics from United Nations, 80% of the Syrians in the three hubs are living below the poverty line. People are trying right now to skip some of the meals. In the near future, they do not have meals at all in order to skip. So this is the situation at the time being. So distributing aid is not a lasting solution. Organizations and the donors behind those organizations have to think about something that can link the uh, resilience, the uh, development with the emergency responses that we are doing. It might be starting with doing early recovery, like, for example, doing, doing some rehabilitations for the essential services, such as schools, hospitals, markets, roads, water stations, etc., in order to ensure that at the end of the day, we are providing sustainable humanitarian services for those that have taken the decision to stay back in the country. Uh, we hope that it's going to be linked with the peace building so that those that are refused in the countries nearby can, their, can return safely to their country without being forced to do those. Thank you. I'm curious to know about the role of non-profit organizations or other types of associations within Syria that have been established over the past 10 years and how they've worked with international organizations like yours. 
in Syria, we have three types of organizations, Syrian organizations. We have the governmental affiliated NGOs. We have the traditional charities, which are either they have ethnical background or they have religious background, which are found in each and every country. Or we have the new NGOs, Syrian NGOs that have formed after 2011. So the first two categories have failed to respond in the non-governmental areas due to several reasons, which have encouraged us as a new organizations formed from the Syrian crisis to respond to the non-governmental areas, whether northeast, northwest of Syria, before that in other areas that were under the control of the opposition. Now, we did not have a humanitarian background when we have started responding. So all of us have came from previous professions. Some of us were engineers, like myself. Others were doctors, physicians, lawyers, businessmen. So we were encouraged to go ahead and to respond to our families because there is no one who, who can go ahead and do that on our behalf. We have, at the beginning, we have tried to allocate some funds from our networks from our relatives, from our friends in the countries nearby, from the Syrian diaspora. But as the conflict have continued, then we have discovered that this is not going to be a, a sustainable source of funds. We have to think about something additional or alternative. Then here the INGOs have jumped in and tried to support us, work through us as local Syrian organizations. And then later on, UN agencies, I've mentioned, they have uh, come on board in 2014 after the cross-border resolution was granted in order to support as much as possible. Now, this have increased the capacities of Syrian organizations, and they are play playing right now a major role, not only in the humanitarian response, but also in the peace building process. So they are right now part of the negotiation and conversation in Geneva between the parties mm -hmm. of uh, war. They are trying as best in order to deliver the voices of the vulnerable families to the parties in order to encourage them to find a political solution that can put an end for that suffering. Thank you. So in addition to the limited role of the international community in assisting with a political solution, what are some obstacles you've identified that have made it more challenging to resolve this crisis? Uh, additional challenges that we are facing is that some of those governments uh, before the COVID have taken some decisions to decrease the funds on Syria, some of them due to the COVID-19 and the economic crisis reflected from the COVID-19 have taken that decision. So just to give you some idea about what you are talking about over here, the United States were one of, was one of the main donors for the health system in the non-governmental areas. So for the last four years, unfortunately, they were decreasing the funds on the health system, which have led that a number of static health facilities have closed in northwest of Syria due to the shortage of funds. The same have happened for education. There is a number of governments, Scandinavian as well as the UK, were supporting the education system in Syria. UK have declared that they are going to decrease the funds, in, including Syria, starting from this year. Uh, other Scandinavian uh, donors have taken that decision a couple of years ago. 
So this means that a number of schools that used to run are going to close. So we were talking about two thirds of the Syrian children are out of school before the COVID, before the decrease of funds. So you can imagine that this statistic is going to, to increase. We were talking about 50% of the health facilities are not running. So you can guess that it's going to continue and it's going to increase. Another challenges is that the economic situation before the COVID-19, particularly with the decrease of the value or the, or the devalue of the Syrian pound, as well as the currencies in the countries nearby, the Turkish lira, the, the Lebanese pound as well, all have played a, an external challenge for organizations like us when we are responding to the Syrian uh, vulnerable families. In addition to that, we have the challenges related to the social tension between the host communities and displaced individuals, whether we are talking about internally displaced or refugee nearby. As the conflict is lasting longer, as the tension is going to increase, because the host community cannot go ahead and afford the hospitalization of those uh, displaced people without paying as well a negative impact from their own pocket. Mazin, what would be a call of action that you would leave our listeners with? I want to encourage each and every individual to keep Syria in their thoughts, to know that the what the media is showing previously that the Syrian uh, war have uh, have been ended or completed, and right now it's a new era of uh, reconstruction. Uh, this is not true at all. Unfortunately, the suffering is still continued as it is with no change. So please try to still be engaged in the Syrian situation. We want from each one of you to try and push the governments in order to keep the funds, the institutional funds that previously were allocated to Syria, because without them, unfortunately, uh, the vulnerable families inside Syria are not going to continue having the essential services that they used to have. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Oxford Policy Pod. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at OxfordPolicyPod underscore and on Twitter at Oxford Policy Pod. The executive producer for this season of OPP is Leanne Ryan Hume, and this episode was researched by Frederic Saint Jean, Hafsan War, and Venetia Lehler, produced by Venetia Lehler, and edited by Hafsan War, Venetia Lehler, and Alicia Aslan. Stay tuned for another episode coming soon.